stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. This week, we're sharing the stories recorded at Strong Stories of the Week, a live storytelling event that we put on with the help of Word Travels for their 2023 Story Week. Six people with powerful stories led us into their foibles, moments of vulnerability and minor catastrophes. From the operating theatre to the desolate landscape of Antarctica, they'll be transporting you with stunning scoring by local composer and artist Elizabeth Jigalin. We're bringing you three tales this week, and you'll be able to catch the rest next week in part two. First up, you'll hear from me. I kicked off the night with a personal narrative of self-discovery, sharing the trials I underwent as president of a university United Nations society. Then, Jared Richards weaves a tale about the glare of fame and the toils of being the least popular member of a boy band. The moment I graduated from high school, I was determined to reinvent myself. After having a terrible time and trying to make myself as small as possible, I wanted to stop limiting myself and start experiencing life for real. I wanted to have fun, get wild, explore my passions. How did I do this? I joined the Model United Nations Society. As potentially sad as it is, (laughs) Model UN, henceforth referred to as MUN, was everything to me. It was through my experience in MUN that I changed from this awkward, self-hating kid into that loud bitch that keeps shouting about human rights. I owe so many of my formational experiences to MUN. It was through Mun that I met the first boy I'd cry over. It was tipsy on cheap rosé at a Mun social event that I came out as queer for the first time. To someone sitting here who will tell a story later. (laughs) Um, That, you know, involved really touching things like boobs are just so nice. And... um, Uh, But yeah, it was then through Man that I met the first girl I'd cry over. I'll admit, crying is kind of my thing. I once cried while watching Alvin and the Chipmunks 2, The Squeakle. It wasn't one of my proudest moments, Um, but Simon was getting bullied and Alvin was being really mean and he abandoned his brothers in their time of need. And it got me. A lot of movies got me. A lot of books and TV shows too. 
and life, really. So then this conflict was created. On one hand, I was making a name for myself in the Australian MUN circuit, participating in and organising the biggest conferences in the country. I was seen as intimidating, which is a pretty impressive feat for someone who stands at five foot nothing. But at the same time, I also had a crying episode at every single conference I attended. Whether it was the delegate for the UK pushing too hard against refugee rights, or a dude on an organising committee getting way too intense about the power he had as an organiser of a pretend United Nations debating conference, things would get me, but I would move past them. Eventually, I worked my ass off and became the president of my uni's UN society. I was thrilled. This was everything I had wanted since I started Model UN. But in, the jan- in January of my first year as president, I had my first breakup. It was dramatic because it was me and because it was also my first lesbian breakup. And as we know, those are unhinged. Uh, (laughs) She dumped me by text message while I was on the way home from one of our dates. (laughs) This ended up being the last straw and the impetus for a massive depressive episode slash breakdown that was admittedly a long time coming. My deteriorating mental health was pretty badly hidden and all those little stresses from life, from being a closeted lesbian to being a broke uni student to being the oldest immigrant daughter, they'd all been building to their inevitable crescendo. Suffice to say, my ex maybe made the right call. It's just the way she did it, maybe not, but. Soon I spiraled, badly. I had trouble getting up and existing in the world. I was crying all the time. Fun fact about me, I've cried on most types of transport. Bus, train, plane, ferry, that's a fun one. Uber, taxi, of course. I'm an expert at turning my entire head to stare earnestly out of a window while tears stream down my face so the people around me don't feel uncomfortable. After bursting into tears and running out of the exam room of a public international law exam, I decided to take a break from uni. Uh, if she's not studying, can she even be president? Said one of the boys on my team as I walked into our conference, uh, into our conference room for a UN society meeting. As someone easily perceived as a little brown girl, I was not unfamiliar with my authority being questioned, and I brushed it off. Honestly, from the beginning of being president, I was dealing with people undermining me, and it only got more intense the more obvious it was that I was struggling with my mental health. But I had to stick it out, right? This was happening when the world was in their girl boss era, and I was often told I was a badass. And badasses don't give up. I'd fought so hard and come so far and made my strict Tamil parents proud for like the first time ever. And yes, 
This, again, was the presidency of a university United Nations society. The stakes couldn't have been lower, but for me, they could not have felt higher. Just like the other girl bosses of the late 2010s, becoming the system was not as subversive as I had hoped it would be. And also, I was not really being a good president. So, I quit. That's right, this isn't the story of a young person looking with the sparkle in their eyes at a video by a positivity influencer and then effortlessly overcoming their obstacles and seeing things through. It's a story of giving up. I wasn't proving the haters wrong. I wasn't gatekeeping like a girl boss should. And I was mad at myself. But the truth is, the biggest gift I gave myself was recognizing that I did not have a handle on my mental health issues and then doing something about it. Soon, I healed. I got on new meds and went to therapy and took my dog out for walks and got so much better. I will also note that I was very privileged and had a family who I could live with and who could support me throughout this time. I am eternally grateful for them. Eventually, I rejoined university and it was rocky at times, but by the end of the year, I was starting to feel whole again. I'd also done the work of actually accepting my sexuality and exploring my gender identity. Um, And I did that by engaging with my queer and trans community. I soon discovered that we are a community that celebrates emotions and crying episodes and being freaking dramatic. And here's the thing, I still cry. Life is hard and while I'm much more mentally healthy, I'm still me. And this guy is a big crier. But it doesn't hinder me in any way. It doesn't make me bad at what I do. At the end of the day, I refuse to believe that you have to be stoic and impenetrable to be respected or even seen as masculine. I know there is so much strength in being sensitive. I am an overly emotional person and I love that about myself. I think we would all be better off if we ceased to see see crying as this big weakness. My vulnerabilities make me a better and more empathetic person. So maybe I'm a crybaby, but I'm also a badass. Is this one? Thank you. Should I choose this one? Uh, yeah, I'll work it out. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. I hope you like it. I suppose... Um, with strong stories of the week, I um, decided not to write about myself, but I am writing about a very weak person um, and a strong narrative that they tell, I suppose. That's kind of my framing. All right, this is it. It is called The Cover Story. It was my first cover. Solo cover, I should say. The band was on covers and front pages constantly. The debut album was the worst. For two years, we had press junkets every second day, the questions never shifting, only the accents. It was pretty rare that a question would be directed to me, so I'd mostly sit there making the face that I'd worked on with our body coach. Our manager had noticed my tendency to zone out, 
And when it became clear that I simply wasn't going to pay attention, she decided that I could at least look the part. Usually for these interviews, I sat in the back row, which really annoyed my mother, who, thank God, was eventually muscled out of accompanying me on tour. But it really infuriated the small, tiny amount of fans that latched onto me as their favorite. The face involves keeping my mouth open the smallest amount while firing my brows slightly, leaning into a kind of dopiness that became, in lieu of absolutely nothing else, my character type. I wasn't the singer, the dancer, the prankster, or even the boy next door. So it was determined that I'd be what we now call the golden retriever boyfriend. Affable, not super sharp, down for a cuddle, just needs food and a ball to play with. Resentment, of course, boiled over for the six years. Do you know how hard it is and how awful it feels to be the least popular member of a boy band? Six shows into our world tour, they stopped printing the shirts, mugs and towels with just my face on them. They realized that they had enough for the tour. Meanwhile, Sean was on his fifth free print. Fifth. I can still quote the entirety of the Pitchfork review of my debut solo album, which is a 3.4 out of 10. There is a world where Dylan's solo album cuts to the most interesting aspect of him. How does it feel to be the product that no one buys? Unfortunately, Windows is a failed exercise in an obvious fallacy that he is a pop star in his own right, worthy of attention, or even the words you're currently reading. The album's nine tracks of tired, sample-dependent EDM proving he and his team of 12-plus producers and songwriters have absolutely nothing to offer beyond a pretty view and a perfectly fine voice. But now, I was ready for my close-up. It's at this point that I need to read a short statement prepared by me after some Googling of legal terms, but that I am positive is 100% binding. In listening to what I am about to say to you, you are agreeing to sign a non-written, non-verbal, but still standing NDA. If you do not agree, you have two seconds to stop listening. Otherwise, you will not be allowed to discuss what I am about to tell you, not even with the people sitting next to you who can also hear this at this moment. Thank you for your understanding. It has been two seconds. The decision to come out was actually pretty easy. I needed to, for my sanity, for myself, for my career. I needed a thing, and everyone else in the band had either graduated into their quirk, 60s tinge pop DJing refugee activism, or they'd retired. Nobody had taken the gay thing yet, presumably because none of them were gay. If anything, our touring schedule had led us all largely to live asexually, even at our most hormonal. This sheer amount of girls and women propositioning us hourly online and in person repulsed me, which actually proved useful as a backstory. There were only a handful that I'd been with, which, as I learned in my research, was actually pretty normal for a gay man, especially a confused teen. And nothing's more confusing than pop stardom. When I emailed my agent that I was eager to come out as gay, the callback was immediate. At that point, I was used to getting a reply like a week later. Before I could say hello, she was calling me brave, powerful, important, words I don't think had ever been used to describe me. After the congratulations were out of the way, she began offering ideas on how to come out. The Frank Ocean route, a subtle, tasteful note, didn't quite make sense to me. 
That only really works when you already have a lot of eyes on you, she said. There was a slow leak. Maybe you could be spotted buying groceries with your handsome roommate, and then you can take him to a red carpet. Maybe a charity event. Somewhere where you'd be the biggest name. But I didn't have a handsome roommate, or a handsome boyfriend, or an ugly one either. I wasn't dating anyone. When it eventually became clear to her that I would never date a man, then we started conversations around a showmance with another of her clients. But that was much later. So we landed on a classic, known as The Ellen, a nice magazine cover, an interview on coming out, acceptance, being open to dating a fan, that sort of thing. On the cover, I would stand shirtless, proud, staring down the barrel of the camera with a look that, I think, speaks to a self-assuredness, a voice fully formed. I no longer had any need for the face. People would want to listen. To prepare, I read as many of the Ellen profiles as I could. An ex-footballer once talks about how he used to struggle to equate his queerness with his masculinity. That seemed useful, given my previous branding. I googled queer coming out stories and watched as many movies and documentaries and specials as I could. I combed through for the common phrases and experiences. First love rejected, the realization that you were different and the need to hide it. The comments here and there that would throw you into a spiral. I invented hard to verify moments, a best friend on summer camp, a dalliance mid-tour with a crew member that ended in heartbreak. And Tweaked in memories to have a pink tinge coming alive while performing. I just like attention. Doing drag in the school play, also like attention. A childhood bedroom plastered with pictures of shirtless John Mayer. He was really cool at the time. (laughs) During the interview, I knew to be bashful, slightly overwhelmed, to pause as if collecting myself. I wanted them to write. At this question, he flushed red and ummed and awed before asking if he could have a second, staring into the distance. When his manager reminded him that he could skip any question, that this was his story, told his way, he broke out of his trance to turn his gaze to her. No, I have to do this. I'm ready to do this. I have to do this. If I saw someone like this growing up, it would have made all the difference. We had final approval of the article, and of the guise of it being a delicate topic. We added in several paragraphs about the upcoming album, which, in polite terms, reconfigured my debut as a fear-driven record, one intentionally masking my truth behind trends. It was time to embrace my voice and stand for something. It was time to come out, sure, gay, whatever, but mostly as a star. That was writer Jared Richards. In our final story, Dylan takes us on an expedition to Antarctica. Hello. Um, I just want to give a quick content warning that fairly early on I talk about suicide. This story was written on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people. I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of country right across this vast land and its surrounding islands. 
I acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first and original storytellers and honour the deep histories and the many yarns that have been had on these lands since time immemorial. I pay my respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm 17 years old when I've learned what it feels like to believe your body is an unlivable place. When I learn what it feels like to be so full of dark ocean, so swollen with sadness that all you want is to open and to feel your chest explode. I'm 17 years old and in the midst of my first psychotic episode, when I take off my shoes and count how many steps it would take to obliterate my life. It's the picture of a burnt orange sunset seared forever into my memory. How the sky is so brilliant and so red, it looks as if those blackened hills are on fire. And that wide sea, clipped white by a ferocious southerly wind, how wild it all is before me. I'm 17 years old when I brush for the first time with my own mortality, crying not in the face of death, but in the face of being found. Put in an ICU with a window, a nurse shines a torch through every 15 minutes just to check that I'm still painfully here. And there's something I think this does to me, to know deep in my body that this life is both precarious and finite. I become emboldened, electric in that way the air becomes laden in anticipation of a storm, as if the whole, as if the whole world is holding its breath ready for the onslaught. And it's not that I haven't ever failed, because I have absolutely spectacularly, more that the risk of failure seems to crack and slip and fall away when you feel as if you have nothing to lose. Because I learn at 17 that nothing in this short life is safe, so I may as well do what I love. Because the improbability of reaching old age suddenly makes anything feel possible. And so in the dark recesses of psych wards, I find writing, sailing if you like, over some watery horizon into uncharted seas where the ocean is deep and the sky feels endless. I lose myself in worlds real and imagined and become the author of my own story so that everything feels swollen with promise and fully realized. Through writing, I carve out space for a future in which I want to live. I'm 22 when I write to every ship I find on Google that goes to Antarctica. I tell them I want to write a book about the ice at the end of the earth. I tell them I'm a painter, and if you take me, I'll come back and have an exhibition and donate half the profits to a charity of your choice. I met with cold silence until one email pops up in my inbox and the CEO of a travel company asks, do you want to come into our office in Sydney for a meeting? Over a pot of coffee, he asked me, do you know what we do? I say, yeah, you're a travel company that does expeditions to Antarctica. He says, every year we take an artist, they come back and have an exhibition and donate half the profits to a charity of our choice. He asked, did you know that when you wrote to us? I think of lying, then decide not to. Shaking my head, I laugh and say, no, no, I didn't. He says, previously we've taken Wendy Sharp and last year we took Ken Doan and well, we've never taken an emerging artist before, but since you're already here. I am 23 when I travel to the ice continent. We sleep one night on the ice, not in tents, but in waterproof sleeping bags, 
that we lie at the base of grave-like holes we've dug in the snow with shovels. It's the middle of summer, so the sky is white and washed out bright in the middle of the night. I have anticipated the profound silence. What I don't anticipate is how overwhelming that silence is. I make noises, coughing and rustling my sleeping bag just to check that my ears are still working. Eventually, I fall asleep, woken in the early hours of the morning by the riotous thunder of a glacier on the other side of the bay beginning to carve. Scientists can dig down into a glacier and extract cores of ice, examining the tiny pockets of air that tell the stories of distant worlds. I like to think of glaciers as libraries of ice, as repositories of world stories. I sit up in my sleeping bag and watch in full awe and wonder as thousands of years of story crack off and descend into the sea in voluptuous surrender. I watch history come crashing full throttle into the present as these stories dissolve into the water from which all life came, the water to which we all ultimately return to. In the middle of the bay between me and the shedding glacier, a pod of humpback whales is surfacing to breathe. I laugh out loud at the brightness of it all, thinking perhaps of how close I have been to my own ending and how in this moment my life feels as if it's just beginning. I have a great uncle named Douglas. He's 96 and a few weeks ago he moved into a nursing home after protesting years that the only way he'd leave his studio in Stanmore with its lush garden, which he'd cultivated over many years, would be in a coffin. And when I asked him how he felt about the move, he too laughed out loud and told me, oh darling, there is always more life to live. That story was told by Dylan Hardcastle. We hope you've enjoyed the tale so far. We'll be bringing you three more vulnerable and excruciating stories next week. See you then. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arande and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.